Hello and welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk about all things urban, demystify development and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett, and today I'm going to deep dive into a topic that is fundamental to understanding how Australian cities take shape, and that is, how do developers develop? To discuss this topic, I'm pleased to welcome our first ever guest on the podcast, Managing Director of the High Court Property Group, Stephen Abolakian. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us today. We've worked together on several projects, I think over about the last 10 years, and I know that you're very hands-on in your management style, which is why I think you are fantastically placed to explain to our listeners today what is involved in the development process. So let's maybe just get down to the business of what's involved in development. Um, What does it mean to be called a developer? What do you actually do as a developer? I suspect many, like, listeners don't actually know what is involved in in that process. So can you break it down for us into key stages? Thank you, Belinda. Thanks for having me today. Um, Development is, it's pretty simple, right? Well, firstly, anyone that's right now listening and there's a roof above them, right? Someone at one point did a development to put that roof there. Anyone who's built a house, subdivided a property, put a fence up the front, they've, they've done a development. So there's a lot of people that have done development out there um, and they wouldn't have thought about that or, you know, wouldn't really connect it to. In what we do, which is, you know, property development of development of apartment buildings, um, it's obviously that's a, you know, the same thing, but a different scale and probably with a you know, few more hairs along the way. Very put simply, we identify property that has the potential to be different and usually different means of a high density. And the process is to take the vision of the vacant block of land or whatever the existing block of land or the, in the improvements are and then go through the steps of obviously you have to buy it, you have to go through design, you have to get approvals council approvals you have to then get a construction certificate and do your construction design you have to get finance you know most cases you have to get pre-sales so there's sales and marketing you then have to build it then you have to make sure you can get an occupation certificate and then hopefully everyone settles and moves in and then you need to make sure that the building is is um you know is is a safe and 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 healthy place for the people to live you know for 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 the future so you know, that's a, that's a really simple way of looking at what we do. Is there one particular part of the process that you really love, that really excites you? It's the probably the deal, right? I think yeah. the deal, yeah. So, you know, not because it's exciting um, only, but also that's what sets the, the path of a successful project. You know, if you do a bad deal, in inverted commas, from the beginning, then you're constantly playing catch up. So I think it's the, one of the most important steps. And for me, you know, it's some idea of, of, of some, you know, you, you've got to start with the deal. You know, I'd love to do that or build that or what a great opportunity where you've got to put it together. And that to me is the most exciting part doing. And then it's great pat on, pat ourselves on the shoulder. And then it's like, Oh, okay, now we've got to do the work. Right. But for me, that will always be my passion when it's, we don't, we don't do a hundred a day, obviously, because, you know, we can do a certain amount of projects. So it's, um, it, but it's that bit at the beginning that sets the path of the whole development journey for each project. So that's why it's my favorite. 
Let's talk a little bit about the timeframes involved in delivering a project because I think the most listeners don't really understand how long it takes to deliver a project from the time you actually do the deal to the time that the projects come out of the ground and people are actually moving in. So can you sort of take us through a little bit of, uh, you know, through those timeframes? Yep, no project is the same, but I think it, you can talk about a typical project. And if, you do, if you're like us and you do everything, typically it's, I, I would say it's about a five-year process so in stage one. So stage one, that's identifying the site. So you, you're, if you're finding the opportunity, that might take you a few months to actually put it together. Then you need to go through the design process, which is another six or so months. Then you lodge at a council. A good experience at council for an apartment building, a good, this is a good experience, is somewhere between 12 and 18 months. You know, if you get out in that time period and with an approval, you have done very well. So we're already at two years maybe to two and a half. If you don't get an approval, you have to obviously go down other avenues that could delay it. So you're at the two year, two, two and a half year mark. You then need to put your construction certificate and your construction documentation and design together. That's another six-ish months. Along that same period, you need to organize finance and get your sales campaign underway, achieve your pre-sales. So that's a six to 12 month process, depending on the size of the project. So all of a sudden you're at year three, three and a half, and then you need to build it. That's somewhere between 18 to 24 months. That's another two years and that's your five-year time frame. Like us, because we're also the, the builder, we then have to stick around at the minimum for another six years to manage the warranty process and any issues that happen in the building, which they naturally do. I always say it's not, it's not an IKEA set that we're putting together. There's always a problem. So we, we've invested, we've got a whole team that manage that and have great relationships with all of our purchases and, and building managers, et cetera. So if you add that on, the actual life cycle of a project for a typical high court project is an 11-year pro- process, but the five-year mark in the middle, which is when the actual people start moving in. Yeah, so that would surprise a lot of people because I know from the community consultation that you know we've run or you know, I've run for other people, it's always the question, you know, you're there talking about a new project and it's like, when is it going to start? You know, and people think it's you know it's going to start in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we always uh, we always uh, we always when we ever get a DA, we're always like, okay, can we start? How soon can we start this? But in the end, it it is it is a process to start, and yeah, we it's a apps as a property developer, one the the, sim, the simplest rule is just play the long game. You have to play the long game because if you think it's quick, it's not. Our average age of a project that we had, um, we did the numbers a few months ago, was um, five and a half years was the average. So I said five, but the average was five and a half for the, just the nature of our projects. I think it should give people a lot of comfort. I, fact, I think the fact that you are there looking after a project, you know, for that 11-year sort of period, particularly because you've got the six-year home warranty period at the end of it, you know, it's, it's not some sort of uh, yeah, put it up and run sort of process. So, you know, having that sort of uh, that commitment throughout. Absolutely. And also because most of our projects are in the same area, Right, we also live and play in the same areas that we develop. So if you had if we had that attitude of put the building up and run away, we wouldn't we wouldn't last as a company with a reputation and, and a and a and a legacy. So um yeah, we're we are in it for the long haul and you know, we don't always get it perfect, but we absolutely are committed to trying that. So I've got a chicken and egg question for you. <laughs> and what comes first? Do you have a project in mind and then you set about finding the site? Or do you find the site and then you formulate the vision? It's, um, 
it'd be a luxury to have a vision and then go and find the appropriate site to execute that vision on that. That's very hard. It sometimes happens, but more often than not, it's a, it's an opportunity, opportunity led strategy. So we can try to create those own opportunities for ourselves, but the vision, you know, the vision can vision visions always change, but you know, the vision to just build good quality of living, you know, a good quality build, a, a well-designed department, you know, in a well um, finished with well-appointed finishes, you know, in a way that's actually going to, you know, allow someone to move in and have a great quality of life, but also not cost them through raising, rising rates and, co- and cost of living in terms of, you know, um, building issues. That can be a vision and that's easy to execute um, when you, you know, and go find opportunities to execute that on. But we don't sit there and say, oh, we'd love to do a project with, all these different uses and, and colors and finishes and heights. And then let's go find something that um, a site that can accommodate that because the, that that's, does not happen very often. And how much are you looking for, I guess, um, off market opportunities when you're, you're looking for that site? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we actually did this stat the other day, probably of the, all the projects we've done in the last 10 years, it's been about 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, percent on the, that we bought on the market and 50% we have, done off the market and our version of off the market is we put it together ourselves so we've you know without it no real estate agent involved so we've gone and we've found the opportunity and we've put it together um you know that starts with things like door knocking or just you know people contact us sometimes um so it's about 50 50 and off the market is where we usually spend most of our time because it's easy when a real estate agent gives you a site on the platter when you think about, I guess, different developments that have occurred in Sydney over the past five, ten years, what is something that you know? What's a project that really stands out to you? Not being one of your own, but you know, somebody else's development that has been exceptional, and and why do you rank it? The, it's cliche, but it's it's how can you not say Barangaroo? I mean, that was a concrete slab of reclaimed land, and lend lease had just come in. Obviously, it's gone through a large, long process, but they've just built towers and they've bought people there. They, you go there and there's just people. You know, they say, you know, build it and they will come, but you build it well and they will run there, they will fly there, and that's what's happened. And I go there, every time I go there, I just every time I sit there and I look around, firstly, I marvel at the actual accomplishment you know, of building what they've built there, the, the physical building of it. But in terms of what they've created... You can't not put that at the top of the list. There's lots of great developments around the Sydney, but that development and what they're still doing there, you've opened, they've opened up the, the water to the public. That's amazing. You take the kids there. You know, it, it's something that just was literally a fenced up concrete slab, you know, not that long ago. And now there's just there's people and activity and retail and hospitality. That to me is an, the, 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 that's the, um, the gold standard. Yeah, it's sort of really interesting because I think back to the 1980s when I was studying planning and that's when Darling Harbour was all, you know, coming out of the ground. And I think back to the controversy that surrounded that project and you, you know, you, you think about it now, I think Sydney siders would just be horrified if they weren't able to do that continuous walk from Barangaroo through Cockle Bay to Darling Harbour. Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's one of the really great things about development that, to be able to, as a developer, to have that foresight 
um, and the, I guess, the resilience that you have to have to be able to like push those boundaries, even even if those dreams haven't been sort of documented, you know, in in urban plans, to actually have that that vision to to see a new urban future and to really push for it. So, what what inspires you about development now? Just to think, we we a piece of property. Usually, it's you know, and where we develop, it's a dilapidated, neglected block of land, and then come back several years later, and there's hundreds of people living there, and it's what they call home. Um, that's the inspiration. That's the fun bit of it, and that that what makes all the pain and stresses of it worthwhile. Um, that's that's how I. That's what I think is inspiring about it. It's an interesting sort of area, but when it comes to development, there seems to be community kickback to the thought of a developer making money from a project. I don't think there are too many other businesses where this would occur. So it leads me to ask, exactly how do you formulate the development vision? Is it purely driven by crunching the numbers and financial returns or is um, design aspirations or you know, marketing and sales research? Well, you know, what, what's really driving the, the initial sort of that design concept? It's, it's absolutely a hybrid of the two. So you ca- I couldn't sit here and try to convince you that the, that the numbers aren't a huge driving force, obviously. Um, you know, in that five-year period you are spending, that I mentioned earlier, you're spending money, you're spending tens of millions of dollars over five years, right? So the, you, have to, you, you have to make sure the numbers stack up. You have to also make sure the banks and your, the fin- financiers agree that it stacks up. So the numbers absolutely drive it. However, there, there, you know, some developers are driven only by the numbers, and you hear all about that in the news. Um, but what I think is the right model is it has to stack up, so to speak. But you know, you don't you don't need to extract every single cent out of every single corner. I think if you if you have the vision in parallel executing the right vision in parallel to making sure the numbers work that's what's to me a truly successful development that it worked it stacked up it was financially viable but it's a great product at the end not a building that looks ugly no one wants to actually and everyone regrets buying in there how much i'm sort of interested in how much like compromise is involved um with the process so you've you've got your your design concept ready to go um from that sort of initial, des- from that design concept to final c- completion, um, are they one and the same project, or do you generally find there's been a lot of sort of, um, you know, sort of toing and froing? I mean, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, the developer put in a DA, it was an AMBIT claim. You know, they've deliberately put on additional stories so they can be taken off. No, no development, in, in our experience, no development ends up how it was first, um, how, how it was first conceived so to speak all right it it's it changes i mean in that i've talked about it's a five-year process to for people to move in in that time you have markets that you need to deal with you have you know demographics change and evolve even in those short five-year windows you know we do censuses in that time period because that's it changes council rules and regulations change um demand changes construction methodology changes you know Rules of materials that we can use or can't use change. The appetite of financiers change. So things change. So it is. It's something when you when we whenever we lodge a DA. Yes, you there you can there tricks can be played and you know you hear lots of stories like that. 
but I don't I don't think it's a deliberate strategy where let's put in for more and scale back. I mean, we never we never do that. We because we've had all the teams, the construction team, the marketing team, the sales team, the building manager team, they've all inputted into a building. So when we're designing it, so we hope that when we lodge the DA, that's the DA that's actually coming out at the end. It never does because it changes through that process. And then even after we get a DA, we have to change it because, oh, we thought everyone, we thought there'd be a demand for, you know, um, two bedroom apartments in this area, but it's actually, no, they want three bedroom apartments. So we have to go back, redesign, you know, sometimes even during construction, we redesign because the market is telling us that, you know, we, 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 we've changed what we, what we want. So it's, it's a balance between the two. Um, but yeah, it, it, but that does sometimes cause community angst because, you know, they, the community sometimes feels that when change, change is, is a result of some form of pre-planned strategy. Well, that's not always the case. It's just a result of dynamics and, and, and the market. Look, it's certainly not for the faint-hearted, the whole like development process. What are really the, you know, what's the key challenge, the biggest pressure point you have to negotiate? Look, probably the key challenge would be trying to achieve everything that I've just spoken about for the last few minutes while making sure that, you know, the money doesn't run out. Like that, that's probably the key, key challenge because, you know, it is a long process um, and, you know, things do change. Um, along the way, as we talked about, but you know, you need to make sure that you can still pay the bills and pay the staff and pay your subbies, etc. Along the way, so that's probably the overall. I think the hardest part of development is the um, the capital management of it. That's why a lot of talk about development is around financing, etc. But from a actual from that process, the five year process that are the steps for me, especially because of what I focus on, um, it's probably the difficulty of getting planning approval in. New South Wales and in some certain areas of New South Wales, it's extremely hard. I mean, you think about it, you actually, you have an active, you actually have an opponent or you have someone who's trying to stop you from doing what you are doing. Whereas most businesses don't actually have that. So are you saying it's the, the council that's the opponent stopping you from doing what you want to do? It's the council. Um, lots of some, not all councils, but it's some councils. Yes. Where no matter what happens, the the objective is to make sure your DA that DA does not get approved. We always get the DA, we get it right. We we end up getting it, but you know that might have taken a timeline that we thought was twelve to eighteen months and becomes a three year timeline. And what is then costs costs occur along the way. You still need to make the project stack up. So what do you do? You have to find a way to 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 recoup some of those costs. So you know it it's it's and then it has all the flow on effects. You know such as you know, how does that alter your design? You know, do you have to then maybe try to 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 change your planning outcome to to offset some of those? So, it's but it's the councils making life hard and and slow is probably the hardest part of what we do. How could it be improved that that particular part of the process? Culture, culture. I think that is that is the number one impediment in councils is the culture is there to refuse. It's very obvious when there's a, there are other councils where their culture is not that, and they're still tough. But at least you know what is go, it's going to take to to get the approval over the line. And obviously, a huge driver of all this is the community forces, which are normally un, all understandable, right? And the, the the councils where the culture is to try to get an optimal outcome for all parties will sit there and explain to you. Community has these concerns. Right. We agree with these ones. I think yeah, these are the ones that you need to address. Whereas the other 
The other end of the spectrum, which is the, where it's a culture of refusal, that is one that it's very difficult to actually negotiate that process with them. And that's why the you know, Land Environment Court now, we don't, we don't do too much in, in the Land Environment Court, but right now if you lodge something in the Land Environment Court, it takes you 12 months to get a hearing because there's so much stuff in there. Yeah, and then that was never really the intent of the Land and Environment Court. It wasn't be, meant to be the default decision maker. It was meant to be the decision maker of last resort. Absolutely. I know some developers, it's not our style, but I know some developers in, other, in certain council areas will lodge a DA and in 42 days where there's planning law allows you to go straight to court. And then, then the community is really left out of it, the council's left out of it, and then people wonder why. And the only reason for that is because um, you know, they've been forced to. A typical example is up and down Pacific Highway. There's a lot of product up there which is really substandard. That's the result of developers having to go through extreme amount of costs and holding costs and pressures to get their approval, where at the end then they're scrambling to still try to make it work. And you've got other councils where the culture is positive and yet we have great product. I can only imagine the challenges and the pressures that as managing director of High Corp you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I know that High Corp's a family-owned business. It was started by your dad, Michael, back in about, I think, the mid-1990s. Um, and today you work alongside your brothers, Troy and Patrick. Can you give me an insight into, I guess, the company and the type of projects that you like to develop? Um, High Corp, so we are a family business. That's at our core. We actually talked about that this morning at our staff meeting. Um, but ha- how it works, so yeah, we've I've got two brothers in the business and obviously um, dad who, who founded the business. Um, we work very well together. I think we're very lucky. Um, we get along. Um, what's essential to that is from day one, dad just let go and, you know, trusted and threw us in the deep end from, from the day one. So that's obviously great. There's none of those normal, you know, one first generation, second generation issues that other companies um, may have had to deal with. And then with my brothers, we're a great team. So we've got our responsibilities of what we handle in the different departments of, of, of the business. So we know what we need to do and we we complement each other and just help each other whenever that's needed. And then that extends to the, the staff and the team. You know, family is a huge value of our, ours as a, as a company and, um, and that teamwork element is essential um, to delivering our projects, which... We're on the North Shore, you know, the type of projects are residential. So our focus is residential. Um, we, we work on, we, our sweet spot, I like to say, is that, you know, 80 to 200 units in a, in a development. Um, sometimes they're a bit smaller and um, we've had a bit bigger. But there's, it's sort of the too big for the small guys and too small for the big guys type space. That's, that's where we specialise in and that's providing housing apartments specifically um, for the next generations in Sydney. And so would you classify yourself as a medium-sized developer then? Is that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're not, we're not a Lend-Lease and we're not a Mervac, absolutely. But, you know, we're a serious operation. You know, we've, the team's growing. Um, we try to, you know, we, we try to bring a corporate approach to, to development. But at the same time, yeah, development is hands-on. You need to operate as, you know, in, you need to switch constantly between, you know, you can be too corporate in development, but you also need to be very hands-on. So um, I think we're in that sweet spot and meeting would be a fair way to describe it. Given the, the family foundations that are so important to High Corp, would you say that development's in your blood? Is it something that you always wanted to do? Were, were you that kid that could never put down the Lego? 
I would love to say that development was in my blood. I, 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 it's obviously, in, it's definitely in the blood, absolutely, you know, somewhere down there. But I, I, I don't remember being, you know, six years old and thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to be a developer one day. I went through, at one point in my teenage years, I, I went through a fitness stage. So I wanted to own a gym. That turned into nutrition and I wanted to then become a chef. Um, 16th birthday, dad bought me um, $1,000 of shares, AMP. I remember AMP, BHP and Qantas. So I went and bought myself The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, which is Warren Buffett's favorite book. So I wanted to be Warren Buffett. Um, but very quickly, it was obvious that I'm very comfortable to say now, you know, 15, 16 years later, I was born to be in property. I know um, with your particular company, you've sort of taken quite a holistic approach and that you've brought a lot of functions in-house. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy and, and why you've done that, why you've deliberately chosen to like bring in-house? You know, you've got your architecture, you've got your construction, you've got your in-house marketing. Why have you set your company up that way? We talked about hands-on before. Our view is that development is not something that can be done from you know, a desktop. It's not something that can be done on, on spreadsheets and paper. It is a hands-on physically and mentally um, uh, intensive process. So it's not something that we set out to do that, you know, we had this ambition of bringing it in-house. It's something that just happened naturally through the organic growth. And, you know, we, by having architecture in-house, by having um, acquisition and the architecture, then we do the marketing, we have the sales in-house, we build in-house, we do property management in-house. This, this, the simplest way is it allows us to control our own destiny. So that means when we have the vision or we have the outcome that we want to achieve, all the stakeholders that have key stakeholders in the process that have an influence in achieving that are under the one roof. They all sit next to each other. We all work together. So, you know, if we are, have a vision to build something, we, you know, the tip, you know, another place it could be, well, oh, that's great, but how do you build it? Here we answer the question as we're designing it. Oh, is, is this going to sell? Is this going to be the right unit mix or the, uh, the price point for the area? Well, sales and marketing is sitting there in the design development process. Um, you know, we're buying something. We can make quick decisions because we have the knowledge in-house to do concepts and planning analysis and feasibility, et cetera. We can, we can act quickly. It's not always rosy. It's, it's not. It's, it's a challenge. There's obviously more people. Um, there's more collaboration needed internally. Um, and there's just more work because it's all being done under one under under the one roof. But over the years, we've always explored. Okay, do we maybe revisit the model? And we always come back to we'd rather have all those that knowledge base and the the the, have the rolled up sleeves, so to speak, in house, um, and then rely on things that we that the extra bits we can rely on experts from the outside to help us. You're a, you're a dad now, and as well as being MD. Um, has having children really changed the way that you approach development? Um, I guess are there new goals or aspirations or even fears that are now front and centre for you as as MD of of High Corp? Kids having kids are, a, as anyone will tell you, are an absolute life changing thing from a, a personal perspective. Obviously, from a from a work perspective, being in property. So from a property perspective, I, I look at the kids. And I look at the generation, I think, how, how would my kids, if they weren't my kids, right, or any, that generation, how would they afford the trajectory that we're on, which is, you know, 
soon $2 million for a two-bedroom is not going to be crazy apartment. It's not going to be a crazy number. $1.5 million for a one-bedroom is not going to be a crazy number. It's scary figures. It is scary. It's scary. And if you told any, me 10 years ago that a two-bedroom would be $1 million in sort of the North Shore, I would have laughed at you. So how, how future generations are going to afford property is absolutely something that I think about every day. I ha- it sounds cliched, but it's, it's, it's a supply issue. Um, maybe we can get into that later, but the, the, we are not building enough properties. You, you don't need me to say that. We're not building enough mm. to, um, to keep a control on some of those, those house prices. The reality is the population is growing. You know, kids move out of house. People are living older, so they're keeping their five-bedroom mansions longer. The only way to, to, to help the affordability for my kids and their generation is to hopefully be able to, to build more. Um, from a personal perspective and in link to the business, you know, it does, having kids does make you think, okay, am I going to, I want to be able to do developments that in 15 years time when I'm driving past them with the kids and say, hey, dad did that back then. And it's still something we're proud of. So that's absolutely something that, that influ- that's changed, not changed, but it's front of mind, the approach when we're doing developments in so far as, you know, how the kids have influenced that. Well, it might be a good sort of uh, springboard onto talking about, I guess, the role of the community <laughs> in the development process. Um, you know, I, I think I believe that in uh, in most people, there's an inner architect and an inner de- inner developer just wanting to get out. Um, I think that's sort of one of the problem. Everybody comes to the table with their own idea of what the perfect development should be for a site, but without really having the understanding of the process that you've just talked about, Stephen. And I know that on the projects that we've done together, um, I always admire how you never shy away from talking to the community. Why do you consult? Why? Because, I mean, from, from my experience working with you, it is an essential part of your process how you approach development. So consultation is very important to us. Of all the projects that you and I have worked on, dozens and dozens of consultation events, not a single one of those have been because we have had to. They haven't been part of some process that that there's a statutory requirement for us to do that. It's something that we've worked with you together to say, yes, consultation is is, is, is an important part of the step that we're at for the said development. Why we do it, it I the... Intention of every consultation event going into it is to talk to the community, to hear what the issues are, and that's part of it. And the other part of it is also to try to get disseminate the correct information, right? Because of that inner architect, and also just the way that information is presented when an application is lodged through you know online, and it's all done through letters and and on websites. It's very easy, you know, even me, I've been doing this for 15 years, I sometimes don't struggle to understand a plan or what's intended. A development application now has, you know, some councils require over 20 consultant reports. It's, 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 it's a mini forest of trees. Luckily, it's all gone electronic now, which so we're not actually, you know, we're not actually, um, you know, knocking trees down to, to print off a development application. But it, it's, it's hundreds and sometimes thousands of pages of, of, of documentation. So how can you, it would be, it would be irresponsible to expect the neighbours to have, have to go through all that and understand what it all means. Because sometimes we don't. So consultation is a way to talk to them, to explain to them. 
um, to describe the to go through the evolution of where we why we've got to to where we are in the project, and it's a decision you know where you and I talk about it before every single one and deciding to go ahead, and it's a process that we go through because we want to be able to tell the community what we're doing and why, and also get the feedback because sometimes very simple things that make a huge difference to the community are very easy fixes for us. And that would be a, a good consultation event is if we can extract some of that from the community and make small changes that are immaterial to us but have a, a very material difference to the, to the community. It doesn't always happen. We can't, we can never always achieve that. But that to me is a good consultation. And when people leave and feel like, okay, High Corp is, is, is there, they've, they've, we know who to talk to now, we can raise concerns with them and it's not just having to go to council and, and, um, and, and you know, call council every five minutes. They can talk to us and we can explain and if, then if we can't, if we're not answer is not satisfactory, then they obviously can go through the, the, the more formal process. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that you make about the complexity of um, development application documentation now. And I think it's just totally unreasonable of the system to expect local residents to be able to... I mean, I know we have the DA trackers and they can go on, but to me it's it's entirely un, unreasonable of the system to expect a local resident to be able to go through those 20-odd consultants' reports and try and make head nor tail of them. Um, I remember, you know, good old days when, when I was a planner at, um, you know, Sydney City Council and even Willoughby City Council, you know, you, you were the duty planner. And back in those days, you, you know, somebody would come up and they would want to know about a DA and you, part of your role as a duty planner was to actually stand there and explain the development to the person, to, to answer their questions. These days, if you go up to the council chamber and you want to look at a DA, you're simply given the documents and you're told to go and sit at a table and you've got the documents for an hour. There, there's, you know, there's a total breakdown in that whole explanation of the project and um, which, yeah, is, is making it even more important, I think, for developers to take on that role of consulting prior to lodgement. I mean, in the process that you've talked about that, you know, can go, well, the five-year process, so you're there for the long haul, it's not quick in sort of go in, get out. How do you manage the community over several years? So it's one thing managing the community prior to the lodgement of the development application, but how do you manage them through construction? Because often it's that sort of the emotional trauma of thinking, oh, my God, I've got to live through construction now. Uh, what do you do? Because I know you do do some, you know, some impressive things in that area. Con- construction is, there is no way to sugarcoat it. Construction is a disruptive activity. It, there's just, there is no way to sugarcoat it, and we've never tried to sugarcoat it. There, it's noisy, it's loud. It's dusty. It causes traffic. Every every annoying thing that could happen in your street happens under construction. The skill or the, the the job for us is to try to make that as least painful as possible. So we do we do the the obvious things. You know we you know mail outs when things are happening. We have a website for each of our projects where um, residents can. Neighbours can um, go and log on and, and see what's happening on site and get in contact with us. We've also got a team we put together now. It's, a, it's something that we've been doing more and more so lately and continue to do, which is a community, community liaison committee. So it's a committee that comprises of us um, and some, sometimes council, sometimes if a council wants to participate, and you know, the, some, some 
sort of, you know, team, street leaders from, from neighbouring streets, strata managers from neighbouring strata buildings. And, you know, we, we can keep in touch with them. They can direct issues towards us. Sometimes, okay, we're na- high neighbours, got a concrete pour happening. We're going to be a bit late tonight letting you know. Um, so that's, that's a way of dealing with it. And then just trying to be understanding of what the neighbours go through. You know, we do send our teams in there too. If, if, you know, there's a bit of dust, we sometimes will go and we'll, we'll just, we've got the resources. So we'll, we'll wash windows. We'll get, give them car wash vouchers. If we know we're going to be disruptive and there's a, some, there's a bedroom or there's a living room right near a certain area, we might give them some movie tickets or a dinner voucher, have a have dinner on us or go see a movie. We've done that before. There's, it is constantly evolving. Um, and overall though, I must say 98% of our neighbouring residents are understanding and and are actually great neighbours to have. But you need, for the for those that we may be a bit more impactful on, we, we, we have the support and infrastructure around to try to make that as easy as possible. But construction is, as I said, noisy, loud, dusty. So our job is to get in there and out as quickly as possible. Um, and that also evolves with each stage of, of the construction that you're at. So, and, and our strategy changes because there's excavation at the beginning, then it goes to more of a people issue. Um, then it goes to, you know, people then leave rubbish and, and, and park their cars in the streets and manage that, tell them where to park, you know, providing facilities on site where possible so they're not having lunch across the road in someone's lounge and, and someone's um, court front yard. It, every project is different. We, just, we, we have people dedicated that manage just that. How much, um, I guess, investing in community consultation at each of these stages, is it important to your brand? Does it enhance your brand? I, it's the areas we develop in are quite development is, is front of mind. It's controversial. You know, you can go to just look at the local Facebook groups. It it is controversial. You know, there, there could be an argument that we leave a consultation with a more damaged brand than a, than an enhanced one in the short term, right? That, so, but overall, for one, for the, from a value of where the community sits in our, you know, in, in our high core values, it's, it's essential for the brand. Um, and, you know, in the end, we want the, we don't want to be seen as the, you know, how a mood, the movies might portray a developer of sitting in some ivory tower and just conducting people to go and build things. You know, we want, as you know, I am next to you at every single consultation. And after they call, they, they speak to me and, and, you know, they, that means they can speak to anyone in, in, in the organisation to, to deal with them, any of the issues that they have. And in the long run, that is absolutely essential for, a, for a, a property brand that's in it for the long term. How else, apart from, you know, I, I guess the consultation, how else do you try and give back through your projects to local communities? So we, community is a, is a big part of what we do and community giving and, and support. The first and foremost, look, there, there are multiple communities. Firstly, I mean, it's some, we sometimes forget when you finish a development of 100 units, there are 200 people now that now have a, a roof over their head. Yeah, a new community. That's right. So, so, you know, we, you know, along with food, water and education, I mean, really shelter, it's an essential service. So... That I mean, the there's a way there's a there's an angle you could look at and 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 you know knowledge that aspect of community is already a huge part of what we do, but then you have the local the community in, from the neighbourhood sense of the word, 
the community for us it's about going into an area and leaving the community in a better place than when we got there right and usually that's easy to look from an aesthetic point of view and we take dilapidated and neglected property and all of a sudden yes there's a building there we try to make it a beautiful building that people are proud of um you know the landscaping better you know a lot of cases we might take three or four driveways off the street and combine it into one driveway so they they are all the um, you know, they're all the ways that we can leave an area better than when we got there. But then also supporting the local community through, through you know, giving and donations. So we run a community grants program in the areas that we, that we develop. So we have a we have a dedicated community community relations manager. So his job is to liaise with the community. We get a lot of inbound requests for support and a lot of outbound requests. That is some that's sometimes financial, that's sometimes physical. Sometimes they need some physical assistance. And given our network and, and resources that we have, we can easily provide that. And that's educational, you know, that that's from a community group point of view, it's educational community groups, cultural, art, um, sustainability, sporting, health. Um, you know, we, we try to balance between those um, those sort of um, areas of, of, of uh, in community organisations and the only difference is and the, I guess the only um, prejudice we have is that it's a local flavour. You know, we, 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 we do tend to, to concentrate most of our efforts locally to where we run our business and where we do our developments. Do you feel it's, it's quite advantageous in terms of your approach to concentrate in sort of just set geographic areas? It's got pluses and minuses. So... You know, the pluses are it's our backyard. We know it, obviously. When, when you focus and concentrate on areas, you know planning controls, you know, you know the, the, the technical bits of, of property development, but also having an understanding of the people that live there. You know, it's, it's not, we're not trying to learn new areas. It's the areas that we live in. It's the areas that we eat and play and socialise. So there's no, there's, there's, you know, we know it as, we know those areas as well as anyone else. And that does give us an advantage in terms of the, the, you know, the local knowledge. The negatives are, you know, there's not that many cranes, you know, on the, the north side of, of the bridge. And that means that actually being able to secure a, a, the, a, the appropriate opportunity is not that easy. So, you know, we, Sydney is growing. Obviously, there are, there are, lot, there are many parts of Sydney that are um, destined to open up. You know, yes, it's over a, a thirty-year time frame from now. But so for us, you know, we 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 are we do have development. We finished one in Sutherland recently, so um, and that was that was a great experience. We are looking at other areas of of both Sydney and interstate. At this, at, but right now, maybe we're a bit um, a bit precious in the sense that you know we like to be able to be close to our sites. It's also good if something ever happens on site, you're there in five minutes. Um, that's a great thing, and. I don't like to spend too much time in my car, so it's good to just be home, home, home to the office. And our sites is um is it is a big part of the decision making. So it's clear that you know, as a developer, you have a really important role to play in the built environment. We've talked about you know the state government plans for growth and and the need to build more housing. So when I think about well, your role or the role of a developer within the built environment, do you see that you are a dream maker where you push the boundaries to realise new opportunities? Or do you feel that, I guess, government regulation and the planning system is forcing you to become more like a conformist where you're just now trying to navigate government regulation and community reaction? I, 
we'd like to think we are dream makers, but that is the that's how we wish we were. But unfortunately, we have no. It's very difficult to be a dream maker. The reality is, government the regulation from plan from a planning law point of view is very very prescriptive. You know, the planning law tells us how many units we can have on a certain side of the building. How many units have to have X amount of um, sun and um, ventilation? Exactly how many to the millimeter? How far it can be from a certain setback? So essentially, planning controls actually provide you a very prescriptive envelope. So a lot of the times, especially in consultation, say, so why have you done it that way? And so that's what the the, reg, the the planning controls force us to do. And you know, it's a really hard thing to understand until you actually are a the developer and you're doing it but it does definitely put and that um, that's why actually a lot of the buildings that you see in Sydney sometimes they look a lot very repetitive they look like it's just the same same architect just took the same design and cookie cutter absolutely because the cookie cutter itself has been created by the regulation right and all you do is you're just making the dough and making it fit in inside the space once you start deviating away from that you then start becoming non-compliant and then councils make that hard for you. And then the community also gets upset because they think you're lodging a non-compliant development. So then you have to revert back to cookie cutter and then everyone's upset because everything just looks the same. So that's, that's the, the balance between, you know, dream making and, and following regulation. Um, it's, I'm not sure what the solution to that is, um, but I'm hoping well, the, the councils which have the positive culture, which I talked about earlier, are more understanding of why, you know, some controls, there are better planning outcomes by doing it differently. And that's where community consultation can sometimes play a role. You can explain why you've done it differently and why that's actually a better outcome. And usually if you can get the message across, people do understand it. Yeah, I think I mean I think it's a you know really good point that you make because I think as soon as you start looking at non-compliant developments, the community is interpreting that as you know sort of oh it's got to be too much. It's developer greed. They're not yet you they're not understanding the sort of I guess the intricacies of the design process and and you know why a non-compliance isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, absolutely, and and that's. And that's where consultation can sometimes play a role in, in, in explaining that. The other part of regulation is the market driver, the, the, the influence it has on, on the market. And what I mean, actually, the other way around. The regulations tell us how big an apartment has to be, how deep it has to be, how big a balcony has to be. So, you know, we, we can... We sometimes, you know, the market tells us, our buyers tell us we want X, Y, Z product. That's what we want. That's how we want to live and grow our families. But the council controls don't allow us to do that. So it actually dictates, it's like social engineering in the sense of what living options are out there through regulation. And sometimes sometimes we pick the fights with council and, and we want to vary what those prescriptive controls are because we want to be able to deliver a variety of product so you know, not everyone's, everyone has a different want and need in where, in where and how they live. And sometimes we need to do the fights that we have to pick with council to pr- pr- be able to build the product that the people actually want. Yeah, and that comes back to what you were talking about before, the cultural understanding within, within, the, within the councils. Just finally, I, as the um, MD of High Corp, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, 
Legacy, it's an interesting word. I think for me is a good legacy. We talk about, you know, the kids driving past buildings and being proud of them. That's that's an obvious one. Probably a good legacy would be that, you know, in, in 5, 10, 15 years from now, someone's doing a podcast and they're talking about using High Corp as the, an, an example of how to do development well. That to me is probably, that would mean a, a, a good legacy was achieved. Fantastic. Well, I hope that's the case. Thank you. <laughs> I know that, uh, yeah, from, from the, certainly the projects that we've worked together on, it's, uh, it's been great working with your company. Um, and I do think that you are out there achieving best practice in community consultation. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly been a positive experience from, from my side. No, thank you, Belinda. And um, I look forward to working with you on all the exciting projects we've got coming up. And thank you for today. Thanks, Stephen. It's clear from our discussion today that there's a lot involved in undertaking a development. In fact, it's fair to say far more than most people realise. It's important that we all stop to think about the challenges that are being navigated by developers when they develop because of the significant role that they play in the growth of our cities and suburbs. At times, their good intentions and their desire to realise unforeseen opportunities can get lost in the community conversations that take place about new projects, particularly because of fear of change or adversarial kickback. And that's all part of the reason why we're doing this podcast. Stephen, it was great to have you on. Thank you again for making the time to share with us your experiences. I wish you and High Corp continued success with your projects. Over the next few months, we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you would like us to address, please send it through via the Urban Concepts website or email me directly at belinda at urbanconcepts.net.au. For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on our socials, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast. 